This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Hello and welcome to the Wingrin podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. Today, we welcome Josh Spiegelman to the show. Josh is currently the SVP of Entertainment and Sports Partnerships at Burns Entertainment, building out their entertainment and sports representation practice. Josh has 20 years of experience in media and sports and has a wealth of knowledge to share with us. Let's get into it. Josh, how are you? Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm doing great, Evan. Thanks. Super excited. And thank you for having me. I'm honored and humbled. Yeah. Josh, I've been a big fan of yours for years, so it's super exciting to have you as one of our first guests on the Windgrid podcast. And where I would love to start is let's rewind. Let's go back to high school, Josh. What was high school, Josh, like? What was he interested in? Wow, that is a great question. So I was a huge sports fan. You know, I slept, you know, I breathed sports. Who are your teams? So I had a really interesting team affinity that some people find bizarre, but there's an explanation. So I grew up in a town called Glastonbury, Connecticut, which is outside of Hartford. So we are at sort of the line of demarcation between New York and Boston sports. Mm. And so because of that, my, my actually affiliation split. So it's even weirder than that. So <laughs> I'm Mets and Giants and both of those affiliations are because my grandfather and my dad were both Mets and Giants fans for, you know, whatever reason, wasn't Mets Jets. And then for basketball, I was a Celtic fan. And the reason being is that the Celtics used to play back in the Bird, McHale, Parrish era. There are eight games a year or so at the Hartford Civic Center. And so Mm. I was 15 minutes away from our house. And so that was the you know, I, I would go see a couple Celtics games and, you know, back when Bird was playing, I just fell in love. Plus, at the time, it was the only NBA team that I could access on our cable network. And then from a hockey perspective, I was a Hartford Whaler fan. Still, from my understanding, the one of the highest selling team paraphernalia in all of sports uh, because that logo is just classic. And then obviously, and so we used to go to games for $10 tickets in high school. It was fantastic. And then they moved to Carolina. So I think now I'm a Ranger fan because I live in New York, but I actually have, I've had a lot of internal battles in terms of from an NBA standpoint, what do I raise my son and my daughter? Do I raise them Celtics fans or do I raise them Knicks fans? Because you know, we're in Westchester, right outside of, out of New York. And, you know, if they're going to go see live basketball, it's likely going to be, it's likely going to be the Knicks. The last piece, I'm an enormous college sports fan, particularly basketball, because growing up in Connecticut, UConn Huskies are, you know, in, in like everyone lives and breathes UConn basketball, particularly in the 90s. So big UConn Hoops fan and still am to this day. Nice. So when the Giants beat the Pats those two times in, in the Super Bowl, what was the makeup of the Super Bowl parties you were at? Was it more Giants fans or Pats fans? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first Super Bowl in 2007, 2006 season, I think it was 2007 calendar year, I was actually on a cruise ship nice. <laughs> with my family <laughs> in the Caribbean. And so I got to celebrate with a bunch of Giants fans to be on the trip. One of them was on his honeymoon, actually, and happened to get in a lot of trouble from his wife. The second <laughs> Super Bowl, we had a big party in the city. Uh, my wife and I were about to get married and mostly Giants fan. Nice. So big sports fan growing up. How did you end up getting into the world of advertising? Yeah, it's a great question. So I went to school at Boston University. And I studied business administration, concentration in marketing. I knew I didn't want to get into finance or accounting. I excelled more at marketing classes. I was, I was always, I was a bit better at English, history, you know, complex math was not my thing. And so, you know, I knew I wanted to get in some capacity into, into marketing. 
but I had no idea what I wanted to do at, at the time. If you told me that I would eventually get into sports, I would have been ecstatic. Like at the time I'd be like, shut up. There's, there's no way I'm going to crack the sports industry. Like it's not going to happen. But, you know, I actually, you know, randomly fell into media strategy and planning initially. One of my good friends from college had a friend who was working at an agency called MediaVest, which is now called Spark Foundry. And they're working on the Crest Toothpaste account. So I interviewed with her. And I'll never forget the day I interviewed. So I, I came, I took the Metro North into the city and, you know, I was super pumped, you know, wore my best suit, probably my only suit at the time. And, you know, I thought I had a good interview. I went before I even got the job, you know, I, of course I was like, I nailed this, which, you know, who knows if I did. And so I went for celebratory drinks by myself at, ESPN zone in Times Square, oh, uh, which was in a classic, classic location. So I was like, I'm in the city. I got to hit up uh, ESPN zone and took the train back, got a call as I'm driving back to my parents' place in Connecticut that they wanted to offer me the job. I was like, wow. It was like, that is the only time in my career. And the only time that will ever happen. I will get a job the same day I interviewed. They must have been very, very hard up for staff at the time because there's no way I interviewed that well. What does that look like? You're you know, first joining a media agency. You're working on a big account. Where does an entry-level employee start? I had no idea what I was getting myself into at the time. I knew Excel moderately well, knew a little PowerPoint, but you know, all of a sudden, you know, they put the Coca-Cola flowchart of activities in front of me as an assistant media planner. And, you know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. And you have, at the time, one of the first American Idol deals that they had done, which at the, at the time, you know, it was a transcendent deal. I would say still to this day is a transcendent uh, d- partnership in the industry. Partnerships with NASCAR, with PGA, they had, they had deals. And so, you know, it was really learning how you approach media strategy, you know, and, and learning the fundamentals of, you know, starting with, you know, how do you connect consumers? How do you reach consumers most effectively? You know, learning moments of receptivity, as we called them. So I learned a lot of fa- really amazing foundational aspects of marketing and media. And so I was blessed, you know, frankly, to be able to work on such an amazing brand. Uh, to start my career. The other thing, you know, this is, you know, I'm aging myself. This was 2002. And so the flow chart was not surprisingly disproportionately television and broadcast at the time. You had some, you know, print and digital, this thing called digital, you know, or, <laughs> you know, internet advertising was probably about 2% of the budget as a test and learn. And, and what uh, is it now, just for comparison? I would imagine probably 40%, if I would guess, maybe higher for some brands. So it's pretty amazing. You know, we were looking at this new passion point called fantasy sports (laughs) and, you know, evaluating, is this a thing, something we should test and learn fantasy sports? And so it was pretty great. Then I had the opportunity to work on Procter & Gamble on Crest toothpaste and Oral-B toothbrushes. And our big sort of, you know, milestone was we launched a MySpace page at the (laughs) time for Crest, which was like huge kudos, incredibly innovative at the time. So it's really amazing when you look back and you put these things in perspective. So that's awesome that starting off your career, you got to work with Unilever, Coca-Cola, such such incredible brands. So just so we can get a better understanding of, of, of how this works... Coca-Cola, for example, they have these partnerships with American Idol and NASCAR. So then as on the media strategy team, is your objective, how do you leverage those partnerships in order to develop a mass media strategy around them? Or are you also helping them execute those partnerships? What does that look like? Yeah. So at the time, again, I'm, I'm super junior. I'm 23 or 24 years old. And yeah. you know we're just making sure that stuff doesn't get screwed up at that point. <laughs> but, 
you know, if, you know, if I look back, if I was more senior on the team, you know, they're really leveraging those partnerships holistically across different aspects of the business. And so, you know, if you think about the purchase funnel and, you know, which anytime I talk to a client, I think about how do we map the different assets in a partnership back to their marketing objectives. Right. And so awareness, consideration, purchase intent. And so, you know, if I think about the American Idol partnership, you know, the clearly it drove a tremendous amount of reach and awareness for the brand, which if, you know, typically with, with consumer packaged goods, you want to be top of mind uh, as many weeks of the year as possible. Usually what we call it called one plus reach is what you want to maximize, which is because it, for a simple product, like a carbonated beverage, it only takes one exposure to really remind you, oh, you know what, if I'm in the store, maybe I'll buy Coke versus another brand. And that applies mm-hmm. to most packaged goods. The more complex the message, the more frequency that you're looking for. But when you're looking for, you know, one plus reach, you know, that's clearly, if you think about the incredible reach that American Idol has, that plays a huge role. But in addition, they were able to embed the brand within the broadcasts, hosts, or the judges had Coca-Cola cups and you know there were you know performances sponsored by coca-cola like it really added to the value of the broadcast and the consumer experience and so because of that it drove brand affinity obviously right so josh that's really interesting to hear about there's the 1x strategy for brands that i guess have a more simple message more so for brand awareness and then a different frequency strategy for for more complex messages Yep, absolutely. When, yeah, when creating a media plan, are, are there certain channels that are better for the 1x sort of strategy versus the frequency yeah. strategy? Yeah, great question. So, all you, by the way, you have all great questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I will qualify this by saying I am a recovering media planner. So I would say media planning is in my prior life. I trained. And we're going to shift to sports yeah. immediately after this. Yeah, you just that, got me yeah. interested. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I still retain a lot of my fundamental knowledge, but I will say that, you know, I will qualify that perhaps some of this could be a little bit outdated, right. but I will say generally speaking, broadcast and linear are still by far the best reach drivers. You know, there's a lot of talk about the demise of television, cord cutting. The reality is it drives the most amount of one plus reach by far across any channel. And live sports, not surprisingly, is the most immune at this point to ratings erosion. And so when you think about live sports and the power of live sports to drive massive reach, it's still unmatched. Actually, This is an amazing stat. Since the start of the NFL season, the top 30, I'm going to say between 30 and 35 ranked programs on television from a rating standpoint are NFL games. Wow. Across, you know, any entertainment, any primetime show. So, and I think if you look at the year, I was usually about 60% of the nights Sports is the number one rated program. So still, you know, a massive opportunity within sports. Digital, clearly, you can still drive reach. But, you know, interesting enough, a lot of marketers institute what they call frequency frequency capping rules. Because you've probably been, you know, subject to this where you get served an ad like 30 times on a site. And you're like, all right, like, I get it. I don't need this ad anymore. So a lot of brands are actually cognizant of how many times their ads are being served up and they are ensuring that the digital properties are putting in what we call frequency caps. Right. Interesting. So it's a perfect segue in, into sports and entertainment. And since I think 2013, I believe if I remember correctly, you've been an account director, managing director, just leading incredible teams 
in entertainment and sports partnerships and now building out your own practice at Burns, which we'll get into in a little bit. But starting back at Group M and Mindshare, what was the impetus of your shift from media planning broadly into sports and entertainment? Yeah. So at the time I was working on the Unilever account, I was a media strategy director on brands like Axe and Degree, working on Dove Men. And I was involved in some of their larger partnerships that were media driven. And so the worlds of media and sponsorship have really converged over the past 15 years where you have a lot of rights holders like Turner and CBS and ESPN that have acquired the sponsorship rights to big properties. So at the time, Unilever had a big NCAA partnership. I was involved from a media standpoint and I enjoyed it so much. And, you know, I got to the point in my career where I decided that I want to spend my time professionally working on subject matters that I'm truly passionate about, that I want to invest time in personally. And so I raised my hand to senior management say if, saying, if there was ever an opportunity to make a pivot into sports and entertainment partnerships within Group M and Mindshare, I'd be game for that. And right. so right place, right time, there was a need uh, for someone to come on board and lead strategy for how Unilever approached their sports and entertainment partnerships across their men's brands. And so I was able to make a lateral pivot and... I was, you know, leading the NCAA business and Unilever's NCAA sponsorship overnight, which was incredible because I already had great relationships with a number of the brands at the time. And then, you know, subsequent to that, I had the the fortune of working with some incredible teammates and with some partners building out a practice at Mindshare in sports and entertainment partnerships and sponsorships across clients like Booking.com, Buffalo Wild Wings, Mm. Marshalls, Intercontinental Hotel Group, and got to work with a ton of amazing clients and brands. And, you know, I just, I was like, it didn't feel like work, (laughs) if that makes any sense. You know, I got to a certain point where I loved my job so much that my wife would be like, all right, I can't talk about work anymore. Like, yeah, I get it. (laughs) So you entered the sports world managing... And NCAA, it was it was a dream for you, which is awesome. And you mentioned earlier that that fun fact about the NFL and just broadly how most people TV ratings it's it's sports people are watching. Yeah. Is is that what is so special about the connection between marketing and sports, or, or is it more than that? Yeah. So I've always believed that sports you know, clearly it's an enormous fabric of our society. Like it it is something that binds people together. It is a unifier. It is part of, there's not many things in culture that can replicate what sports really provides. I've always said there's literally nothing else where you may have millions of people at one time being absolutely elated and ecstatic because their team won and then millions of people at the same time also being despondent and depressed because their team lost you know like there's nothing else that exists like that you know and i was that's the only thing i could think of well that's true that's true (laughs) that's a good point but you know i was always fascinated from an early age even like the fact that I was a huge UConn Husky fan and I would spiral into 24 hour depressions after big losses. Yeah. I was like 12 years old and, and I would think about the fact that I don't know any of these guys on the team personally. Like how, why do I feel such an emotional connection to a group of human beings that I've never met? And that is the power. There's a tribalism in sports you know, from a fan perspective, but then as you know, from a youth sports perspective, sports teaches so many incredible values to kids growing up from a teamwork perspective, in terms of sportsmanship, 
how to be unselfish and so, how to fight adversity. So, you know, I think there are so many incredible aspects of, of sports and competition that bind people together and are part of their journeys throughout their lives. And so I've always been fascinated really from a psychology perspective and then thinking about the psychology of sports, how brands can then be part of that experience and ultimately be additive to the experience. So interesting. So what I'm hearing and it makes so much sense is a, a reason to tie with sports is one, you could reach a lot of people, but two, you're reaching them at happy or not so happy moments, but emotional yeah. moments. Yes. And when when engaging with people at emotional moments, that, that's how psychologically you're getting ingrained in, in, into yes. their minds. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, there's research that consumers are significantly more receptive to marketing messages when they are in a heightened state of emotion. Whether, whether that is a, a state where they're elated or a state where they're despondent. Now you have to be careful, you know, in terms of, you know, when, if you're despondent, you want to give them something to cheer for. But there's a lot of fascinating research there as well in terms of how do you really find a way to capitalize on that fan passion. Right. So you've worked with incredible brands, incredible properties. Are there any specific campaigns that come to mind that are most memorable or, or you're most proud of? Yeah. So relatively recently was a campaign I'm most proud of in my career. It, it was also one of the most arduous. It was blood, sweat, and tears that went into it. But these campaigns, they're hard and they're hard for a reason because that's what makes greatness. So it was a campaign in 2020 with... Dove Men Plus Care in the National Basketball Players Association. And so you may recall back in July 4th, 2020, it hit the trades that the NBA and the NBPA decided to put social justice messages on the backs of jerseys. Mm -hmm. And so I saw it hit the trades on a Sunday night. I called my friend who represented the Players Association on that Monday and I said, this may be a, an ambitious idea, but if I could find a brand that had like-minded values and represented the values that were on the backs of jerseys, could we find a coalition of players that a brand could partner with around that sentiment and obviously shared values around social justice and racial equity? And so, yeah, we ended up bringing Dove Men Plus Care on, which has an incredible heritage and history in looking at the, the care, caring emotional side of men. And they were fully invested very early and were off to the races and worked with some incredible partner agencies to cultivate a campaign called Commit to Care in, jointly with the National Basketball Players Association. Care was a double entendre because obviously you have Dove Men Plus Care, but it also was an acronym we created that stood for Care About Racial Equity. And the purpose was really to change the way people see and treat Black men. And thinking about athletes who a lot of times, you know, people think of athletes as just entertainers, you know, they're caregivers, they're fathers, they're brothers, you know, they're uh, people who are incredibly involved in their community. So we worked with Chris Paul, Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brown, a number of players to tell their stories around, you know, how do they give back to their communities? How are they really helping the next generation? And it was, you know, it aired in the NBA finals. Our team at the time created the content. We partnered, I was at Mindshare, we partnered with Edelman Public Relations Joy Collective, which is an incredible independent marketing agency focused on multicultural and you know the brand was was amazing so that was i would say one of the, like the proudest i've ever been of a campaign because it also truly made a difference in society you know we studied the effects and like people actually after hearing these stories from it was 11 nba players that we worked with they 
fundamentally thought about Black men in a different way. They, we actually changed perception, which was just very rewarding when you can use your job as a tool of good. So I would say, you know, that was relatively recent, but also something that, you know, I think I'll always be proud of. It's incredible. From the moment you had that idea and called your friend at the NBA PA to the time the, the campaign went live, how long did that take? <laughs> Probably that's two and a half months, which at the time, like that was a full on sprint. I can imagine. Full on so sprint. many different parties. That you got a lot of state. I mean, we're talking about something that is so important that you, you want to get it. You need to get it right. You know, right. and during that time you had the, you had the boycott that happened, you know, in early, if you remember that, uh, late August, early September, there was a lot, you know, of just different cultural conversation, you know? And so, you know, we were like, we need to do this, but to Unilever's credit, like they scrutinized every single aspect of the campaign because they had to, like, they, they need to make sure you know, if we partnered with an incredible organization like the National Basketball Players Association, who, by the way, was as invested, you know, as Dove Men Plus Care was, and, you know, incredible partners, that we nailed it and we had to stick the landing. So it was a fun summer for sure. <laughs> From a high level, so there's, I assume, budget that needs to go to the NBA PA in order to get that talent involved. Then there's budget that needs to go into creating the right creative and, yeah. and TV commercial. And then potentially budget that goes towards paying the players to do social posts and, and you know, social influencing. Like from a high level, how is that bucket broke down? Like what percent is spent on which pieces? Yeah. So in this case, it's really get you have to build everything from the ground up. So, you know, they weren't going in with saying we have X amount of money. How are we going to split this up? I think first, clearly, you need to ensure that you can fund the relationship with the Players Association. And so that was the most important piece. And I think what we looked at it as is like these players are mega influencers. And so like utilizing their social influence and scale, we were able to drive a ton of reach. But then clearly we thought about, okay, how do we then amplify their presence? And, and listen, you know, content production, clearly, you know, there's a cost, but at the time we were still in the heart of COVID. So everything was filmed remotely, which our team at Mindshare, the Content Plus team, we, you know, were learning on the fly, you know, what is the type of technology we need? You know, these guys need ring lights. And so, you know, we were able to film all the players and really direct to camera interviews, you know, but it was almost all done remotely, which was amazing. And then we've, you know, we looked at how do we amplify it in media in the right places at the right time. So tentpole moments like the NBA finals, but also, you know, media that was also targeting black consumers who we knew this message was so important to. And so I think the team was really thoughtful around like, how do we bring this to life in the, in the most relevant environments? Lastly, PR, you know, this was clearly something that was something that was, it's really important for the players to speak about. Like they, they wanted to talk about, you know, what they were doing with, you know, jointly with government plus care. And so that yeah, we actually created these camps for kids where we gave them technology and resources and we created this whole mentorship program for them where a number of, of kids that were associated with each of the players, whether it be their foundations, were able to be inspired by these tech and talk camps. So yeah, it was a, it was a pretty amazing program and it's hard to really appreciate it when you're in the midst of something like that because every day is crazy, but when you can reflect back on what you accomplished, it's, it's pretty awesome. How long of a shelf life does a campaign like that have? Yeah. Uh, so I think it, listen, depends. You know, I think clearly, number one, it's dependent on budget. Number two, it's dependent on the brand priorities and the brand objectives are. And so, 
listen, I'm a huge believer in continuity for brands. I think far too many brands try to move on to the next best thing too quickly, as opposed to really sweating the value and and the equity of programs that they've built. And so, you know, I like to say a lot of the times with many, I, I think this is true for human beings as well as companies, as well as brands. Greatest strength is your greatest weakness. Mm-hmm. So if you apply that to anyone you know personally, I guarantee you that you'll think about, okay, this person's greatest strength. Actually, you know what? It is it's their greatest weakness. So how do you minimize the weaknesses? So that's one of the few things I've figured out in life. Yeah, and so when you think about a lot of brands, and the brand managers are incented to disrupt, to bring new thinking to the table, to create a new campaign versus just saying, you know what, I'm just going to keep riding out what we've already built. Right. Because they want to make a mark, you know, like you know, any human being wants to come into a new position and you say like, I want to make a mark on this business and I'm going to affect change. But, you know, the detriment of that is sometimes brands can, you know, listen, they they lack identity in the marketplace because they're moving from one campaign to the next, to the next lacking consistency. Doveman plus care, you know, to their credit, they've always stood for one thing and been very single-minded in the marketplace, you know, dating back years from when they worked with Shaq and, and Dwayne Wade. But, you know, I think, you know, let's say if you look at brands and you say like, wait, what's this campaign? Where did they come up with this? Like there's human beings behind those campaigns that have made those <laughs> decisions. You know, if I think about, listen, one of the great, franchises in sports marketing is Home Depot's presenting sponsorship of College Game Day. You know, they've been with them since the inception of that. And so they've built equity year over year. I always think about that as a case study. You think about what Allstate has done. Again, very simple, but in terms of really activating against college football field goal nets and the good hands that you see and the frequency that you build every year. And so it's one of those interesting things in in our industry where I think everyone who's type A and driven and ambitious, like we want to create new stuff, you know, like that's human nature. But I think there's, I think a lot of brands would be wise to also think about what are the, the activities and the campaigns that they know are working, that they can continue to refine and build and optimize. Right. And Mr. Keats from Allstate, if you're listening, I still think we should get the good hands on all youth soccer nets all across the country. It would be great, but the conversation for another time. I just spoke to Dan <laughs> recently. Great guy. He is a great guy. I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into, you mentioned how there are certain companies like Home Depot, they have that continuity. They've been doing that, the, the halftime show ever, ever since its in, inception. And then there are other companies that, to your point, their strength is their biggest weakness, and they always want to move on to the next bigger and better thing so someone can leave their mark. Yeah. As an organization, have you seen commonalities in how certain brands incentivize their employees to potentially stay the course when something is working well versus come up with something new? So I think that the companies that are invested in long-term growth and long-term brand building and are incentivizing their employees over a number of years, as opposed to looking at, you know, what have you done for me recently? What's your, you know, year, every single quarter or annually, you know, what's our market share? Like those are the companies clearly that are investing in their employees from a long-term perspective versus short-termism, you know, which was coined a couple of years ago where a lot of brands for, for a period of time were really invested in lower funnel marketing. And, you know, how do we drive purchase intent as quickly as possible, but potentially sacrificing brand building and brand equity. And, you know, one thing that I think every brand struggles with is, you know, what is the right balance of brand versus demand? And so, you know, how do we think about building the brand long-term versus how do we think about bringing, you know, driving short-term demand? And I think, listen, I don't think there's any right answer because 
it is complex. I, you know, I haven't heard of, actually, I haven't heard of bonus structures that are, you know, based on brand building, you know, but I think if companies looked at that, it would be pretty innovative versus, you know, the short term, you know, share in volume from a sales perspective, which sometimes can incent the wrong decisions. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Last thing I want to touch on in, in sports is I know something you're very passionate about is gender equity in sports. What type of role can a brand play in promoting gender equity in sports? Yeah, so gender equity is is near and dear to my heart. One, I have a daughter who's four years old and she's playing soccer. And it was funny when I was coaching my son Aiden in soccer and my daughter Sadie started playing and my wife called me out. She's like, you know, you got to coach her too, right? And I was like, you're 100% right. <laughs> you know, that I got to live gender equity in terms of, you know, if I'm not living it for my children, I can't really preach about it. And so when you think about gender equity in sports, it's, I believe we're starting to hit a tipping point culturally. Clearly, there was a lot of noise, rightfully so, around March Madness and the inequity from a a gym resource perspective with the women's basketball tournament relative to the men's. And I think that started a really necessary conversation. And it was was simply, it was ignited by a TikTok video by Sedona Prince, I think at the time. And to the NCAA's credit, they've gone through a, a full gender equity review and they've been very introspective and self-critical and I think are making meaningful change. Also, next year is going to be the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which is going to be a really important landmark for female athletes and gender equity. And, you know, going back to your question, what can brands do? To me, it's about how do they increase visibility for women's athletes and invest in increasing visibility? Because four, only 4% of impressions in the U.S. in sports are for female sports. It's like the disparity is absolutely insane. And so if you think about the challenge and the problem, you have to start from the base, which is you need to invest in women's sports to drive more impressions. More impressions will in turn drive more sponsors, right? Because you have more ratings, you'll have more brands that will invest. More endorsement deals with female athletes, obviously, will then transpire. So I think investing in women's sports from a media perspective is where you have to start because that begins that flywheel. Now, at the same time, you know, I'm... I'm at uh, Burns Entertainment now, which our heritage and background is we're one of, the, one of the best in the business in talent procurement and brokering partnerships with celebrities and athletes. And I would argue that for female athletes, social media has been the great equalizer, where you have a number of incredibly strong, brave, outspoken female athletes that have elevated their own brands in ways that frankly men haven't like they've brought in their fans into their world. And there's a lot of research and study that suggests that female sports fans relative to men's sports fans, they want to connect with female athletes in a very personal way. Mm -hmm. Male sports fans, you know, listen, they're, they're more motivated by what happens on the court but on the field, on the pitch, but female sports fans want to really understand who these female athletes are as people. They want to relate to them as, you know, perhaps as moms, you know, what they're doing, you know, in their community, you know, from a mental health perspective, clearly we've seen a number of high profile athletes recently really be vulnerable um, in a way that men aren't typically. And so I think that is also going to be interesting to see how, brands continue to invest in female athletes as brand ambassadors and in the the shared values that they identify. So I think 
Going back to your question, it really comes down to prioritizing female sports in your marketing plans and putting your money where your mouth is, you know, really investing in it because without investment from brands, it's not, it's not going to change. That's super interesting. I didn't realize it was the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Title IX, for any listeners that aren't familiar with Title IX, Josh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it essentially makes sure that Division One or maybe all schools in, in NCAA have an equal amount of men's and women's sports programs. That's exactly right. Unfortunately for me, the, the sport that I had the best chance of playing D1 was bowling. And there's a women's bowling team, <laughs> but, but not a men's. But overall, a huge fan of, of what Title IX That's is amazing. and what it stands for. In terms of increase investing in, in women's sports and growing its its visibility, I might be overgeneralizing, but do you think that the path to growing women's sports fan base is by acquiring more male or female fans? That's a big question right there. Yeah. And I definitely don't have the answer. And the reason I asked that question is, yeah, what's the current viewership at at large of of, of sports? Do you know what the ratio is of men? Yeah, yeah. So it's actually, it's more female skewing than most people would believe, particularly for the big water cooler events. So if you think about big NFL games, playoffs, March Madness, the NBA playoffs, the NBA finals, it's usually somewhere around 60-40, give or take five percentage points each way. And for some events, it's even closer to 50-50 because there are social occasions. There's a lot of co-viewing that happens within families, with friends. And so, you know, I've actually spoken to a lot of brands that it's a great opportunity to reach female fans in big sporting events as well as as well as male fans. Now when you think about female sports, I want to say that it actually still skews slightly male. And so maybe slightly female for some, but I think that it's incumbent upon both genders really to to support female athletes, just like they support male athletes. Like they're, you know, they're incredible competitors. There's incredible stories. Unless if you think about a team like the Yukon women's basketball team, which you know, one of the most storied Iconic. teams yeah. in sports history. Now, again, I grew up in Connecticut. I think about going to UConn women's games. I think about all my friends and their parents. And it was no different than how men's sports were supported. There was equally as many men supporting the basketball team, the women's basketball team, as there were women. And that's because they had pride and they rooted for you know, these young, incredible women and competitors in the same way that they root for men. So if you can replicate the magic that the UConn women's team has created in the state of Connecticut and find a way to harness that passion everywhere, that's, it's a very, very daunting, you know, tall task, but I think, you know, I think you need both genders. Yeah. So shifting gears, congratulations on your new ish role at Burns. Thank Uh, you incredible company that you shared a little bit about what they do, but tell us a little bit more about what your new role entails. Yeah. So Burns is been around for 50 years. We do 500 plus deals with celebrities across Hollywood, athletes, experts across, you know, in culinary, you name it on behalf of a ton of brands and also work with influencers and, and do music licensing. And so the, the CEO of Burns called me up uh, over the summer and you know said, listen, I know how inextricably linked talent partnerships are with sponsorship. And would you be interested in coming on board and starting a sponsorship offering for our company? And so... You know, you know, Evan, as an entrepreneur, you know, it's uh, I take a, a step back and think about like, you know, is this something that I want to dive into? And I kept coming back to the fact, like, how could I not, how could I not give this a shot? You know, this is an incredible opportunity with a big, with an agency that has a stable of, of great clients. And it's an opportunity to take everything I've learned over the years, working with Blue Chip clients, 
blue chip properties and then creating something from all that knowledge that I could put a mark on. And so, yeah, as you know, now I'm uh, really hitting the pavement, hitting the street and thinking about and talking to brands about how they can cultivate sponsorship and partnership strategies, you know, helping them evaluate proposals, helping them do valuations on proposals in terms of, you know, is the offer that they're getting or the financial ask commensurate with the assets that are in the proposal. And so about two months in, so it's still, you know, I would say very new, but certainly very exciting. That's awesome. What have been the biggest pros and biggest challenges of, you know, going from, I don't know, how many employees are at Mindshare? Over a thousand in the US. Over a thousand to I think it's 47 at Burns or or something? Uh, Less than that. Less. Yeah. So the pros are that every day I get up and I know like I can create something of my own and I can hit the pavement and put in the sweat equity and, you know, you can't match the inspiration and the motivation that you feel when you're building something yourself. Now, granted, it's with an incredible company that has a storied history and a great business. It's the inspiration that you feel and that and that burn. It's hard to replicate, you know, when you're working for a huge corporation and you're one of of thousands of employees globally. And listen, it's a also a very since it's a small company, there's a very much a family atmosphere. It's a close knit atmosphere where everyone's pulling for each other and you know, people are very passionate about what they do because, you know, people don't go to Burns for a job. They go to Burns because, you know, they want a career to, you know, and so, you know, you're working with a lot of senior level people who have been in the business for a long time. Now, the cons are that, and someone told me this before I started, it's lonelier than when you're working for a huge corporation, which not surprisingly, because, you know, you particularly when people are still mostly working remotely, you know, you're, you know, it's on you, you know, I'm getting up every morning and I'm, I'm reaching out to my contact list and friends and, and former colleagues and hitting the pavement, getting meetings and really trying to understand how I can help. But, you know, I don't have an enormous team to lean on like I used to. Um, and, you know, so, you know, that's a trade-off clearly. Yeah. And then there's more, you know, emotionally, there's more ups and downs. So the little there's, you celebrate the small wins. I've noticed a lot more already. And so, you know, I get a meeting with, with a, a prospect that I've been, you know, trying to talk to for the last month. Like that, that's a big deal that, I, you know, whereas before I got to meet with the client, fine. Like it doesn't, doesn't really affect my day at all. So I'm sure you can appreciate that. Uh, yeah, welcome to our life. Uh, <laughs> I could definitely appreciate that. And now on, on the flip side, for a brand, for a company, what would you say are the biggest benefits of working with more of a boutique, smaller company? Yeah. Yep. So you're you're going to be a very big fish in a smaller pond, and you know you're still going to get senior level guidance next expertise from, you know, folks that have been in the industry for a long time. But listen, as we talk about every, we have to treat every single client engagement, like, like it's our last one. That's the way that we're going to continue to excel because we don't have the luxury of a big holding company, you know, at our backs. And so you're going to get, you know, white glove service because this is our livelihood, you know? And so it's so important that we are doing right by clients. You're going to get a passionate group of senior level people. Listen, I worked at big agencies for a long time and there's a ton of fantastic people. But the reality is that I think as we all know, particularly the the big holding companies, they got to drive margin for Wall Street. And that typically means that you first start to talk to someone very senior and then you get introduced to someone a lot more junior who's going to work on your business yeah. because that's how these holding companies make money. And listen, there's a lot of great junior level people in the industry that are able to, again, like when I was 24, 25 and managing a, 
a flowchart of much more money than I should have at the time. But, you know, those are definitely the things I would think about. Yeah. Josh, this has been insightful, inspiring, fun. I'm so excited for you. I know you are going to crush it in your new role. I appreciate it. (laughs) Before I let you go, though, we have our lightning round. It's two minutes. I have four questions. And just first thing that comes to mind. All right. Are you ready? I think so. All right. First question. What is your favorite youth sports memory? My favorite youth sports memory is winning my first tennis tournament. So so tennis was, was my... My best sport growing up, I played varsity tennis in high school. And when I was 11 or 12, I got my first big trophy. So I won our our club tournament. And so, yeah, that's my sort of my best sports youth memory. We got to hit sometime. Next time I'm in Westchester. I'm down. I'm down. I still got a nasty forehand. All right. Let's see if you could return my serve. (laughs) It's on. It's on. You touched on this a little bit, but when you were growing up, what did you want to be when, when you got older? So it's funny you ask, because I recently looked at a time capsule, one of those things from high school where you, you know, you write everything. And I think at the time I wanted to be a sports journalist. Oh, yep. I was on my school paper writing for the sports section. So, so that was my goal at the time. Love it. So, I, you know, I'm at least I'm in the somewhat the same stratosphere. Yeah, you kind of nailed it. Third question. What is a brand whose marketing you admire most? Nike, by far. Best brand in the world, period. Love it. Just do it. Uh, And finally, what is a go-to cause that you like to support? I'm a big fan of Habitat for Humanity. So I've, at an early age, you know, in in my growing up when I was a teenager, I went on a couple of trips with Habitat. And then as an adult, you know, I support it just because I think being able to actually build a, a physical edifice for someone in need is is really special. That's it. That's all I got for you, Josh. This was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Evan. This has been fantastic and a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our episode with Josh Spiegelman. As a recap, we discussed what it's like to work at both a large media agency and a small one the power of tying marketing and sports together, gender equity in sports and how brands can help to bridge that gap, and how he brought some really exciting campaigns to life, including the Dove Men's Care NBA campaign. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Evan Brandoff. See you next time. Play on, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow League Side on LinkedIn and Instagram at League Side underscore. See you next time.